I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Series 2, Podcast C, The Merchant of Venice. For this podcast, because I won't be retelling the plot, if you don't already know the play, I would recommend reading it once through before listening. The dramatic conflict of The Merchant of Venice raises profound and universal human questions that its ending resolves joyfully. But the play is also one of Shakespeare's most challenging to modern readers and audiences. There are two major difficulties. One is the tendency to treat Shakespeare's play like a modern slice-of-life drama instead of a Renaissance comedy. This results in our posing irrelevant questions that the play does not and cannot answer. The other is that the dramatic conflict in the play is built upon a cultural tradition that the modern Western world at its best has rightly repudiated, namely the 2,000-year history of Christian anti-Semitism. Let us begin with what the play is really about and then turn to the difficulties. The Merchant of Venice, as Shakespeare intended it to be seen, provides a brilliant and moving conflict between true and false valuation. The drama unfolds as a conflict between the opposed wills of the virtuous Antonio the merchant and the villainous Shylock. Antonio values quality rather than quantity. In the name of quality, he is willing to sacrifice any quantity, including quantity of life. His language is that of gift, affection, concern for others, and self-sacrifice. He is an exemplary Christian, not merely in preaching the doctrine of love, but in embodying it. By contrast, Shylock misvalues everything, in keeping with Shakespeare's received and affirmed ideas about the spiritual blindness of the Jews in refusing to embrace the Christian redemption through Christ. I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Shylock values quantity rather than quality. His language is that of possession, material advantage, concern for himself, and justice in the form of the letter of the law. To him, a daughter lost is exactly like ducats lost. A Jew is like other men in having eyes and ears, being able to be poisoned, having a right to revenge. Shylock makes no mention of the higher human gifts, reason, and the capacity to love. The two friends, Antonio and Bassanio, embody the same values in their respective arenas, and their friendship represents the marriage of true minds of Shakespeare's Sonnet 116. Antonio stands for self-sacrifice in the world of Venice, which is characterized by commerce, fortune, action, law courts, and the acquisition of wealth. Bassanio stands for self-sacrifice in the world of Belmont, which is characterized by love, matrimony, music, casket tests, and the enjoyment of wealth. In Belmont, Bassanio is willing to give and hazard all he hath for Portia. In Venice, Antonio is willing to do the same for Bassanio. Everyone in the play is called to discern true value in situations where it may be disguised. In the law court, true value lies not in the mere letter of the law, but in justice seasoned with mercy. In this, the play bears comparison with Measure for Measure, which I'll discuss in Series 2, Podcast G. Here, in the winning of the lady, Portia, true value lies not in outward show, the gold casket, nor in presumed deserving, the silver casket, but in willing self-sacrifice, the lead casket. In the household of Shylock, True value lies in escape, away from possessiveness, materialism, and soulless obligations, and toward Christian love and joy, represented by marriage and by music, against which Shylock shuts his house's ears, that is, his windows. The servant, Launcelot, desires to leave Shylock's service against his conscience. In this, his impulse is right, his reason wrong for his supposed conscience is a golden casket containing a devil, and his supposed fiend 
is a leaden casket containing his true conscience. His actual choice reveals the truth about Bassanio's liberality. Bassanio is not a spendthrift, as Shylock claims, but a bestower of gifts. Shylock lives in a miserly fashion, seeking to acquire more than he needs and grudging expenses, including the food of his servants. By contrast, Bassanio generously spends money on liveries for his servants and on entertainment for his friends, taking joy in the sharing of his substance as Antonio takes joy in giving to Bassanio what he needs and as Portia takes joy in giving to both. In Act 4, Scene 1, lines 196 to 200, Portia expresses the need for the seasoning of justice. Earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. And without its seasoning, none of us should see salvation. In every character and arena, the ability to season judgment is challenged. The betrayal of one's father by escape is wrong unless, as in Jessica, it is seasoned with the true motive of fidelity to higher values. Bassanio's desire for Portia is seasoned with wisdom, no mere fancy bread in the eyes where it must soon die. That's Act 3, Scene 2, Line 63 to 69. In the giving of the rings, oaths and symbols are seasoned with understanding and forgiveness. Oaths and bonds must be adhered to, or justice would collapse, but superior to them are the values of forgiveness, mercy, and faithful love, the bonds of the heart. Having been put in good order, mercantile Venice is left behind for the delights of Belmont, intimating that, analogously, the practical world of time and space will ultimately be left behind in heaven. In Belmont, the mock quarrels over the ring season love with mirth and point to the generous love that underlies them. The whole play is of a piece, a variety of dances to a single theme, ending in one of the loveliest scenes of harmony in all Shakespeare's works. If we see the play thus, as Shakespeare crafted it to be seen, we will find that many questions addressed to the play by critics are misguided, the result of treating the play as a modern realistic psychological drama instead of a Renaissance moral one. Seeing the play in Shakespeare's own terms, we find that such questions disappear like images in a funhouse mirror when we go out into the sunlight. In what follows, I'm going to ask some of the misguided questions that some critics have used to attack this play and then try to put them in a light that restores our appreciation. Let's begin with Antonio. Why is Antonio sad, meaning serious, solemn, gloomy, at the very start? Is he feeling unrequited gay love for Bassanio, as some directors insist? Is he worried about his ships contrary to his claim? Is he secretly feeling guilty about hating Jews? In the beginning of Act One, Scene One, Shakespeare shows us Antonio trying to understand why he is sad and failing to do so. Antonio's I know not why I am so sad is emphasized by being the first line of the play. His speeches are not intended to make us guess at a cause that he himself cannot discover. If there were such a cause, how would we know what it was unless Shakespeare conveyed it to us explicitly? There is no time in the theater as there is in the study to invent it for ourselves. And Shakespeare is not one for keeping secrets from his audience. As Hamlet says, the players cannot keep counsel, they'll tell all. That's in Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 2, lines 141-2. Shakespeare tells us what he wants us to know, and more than once. What he wants us to know in this case is simply that Antonio is sad without knowing why. It turns out that what actually makes Antonio unaccountably sad is a true premonition of disaster, a common Shakespearean technique of foreshadowing. Compare, for example, Clarence's dream of drowning in Richard III, Act I, Scene 4, 
Hamlet's How ill all's here about my heart, in Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2, lines 212 to 13, and Desdemona's Willow Song in Othello, Act 4, Scene 3, all of which forebode something that neither the character nor the audience knows until it happens. Here Antonio is feeling as premonition what he is soon to feel as reality, the threat of death. Shakespeare means us to know about his gloom without knowing why it is there until the plot gets around to showing us why it is. What about Antonio's bosom friend, Bassanio? Isn't the supposedly ideal lover Bassanio selfish and mercenary? He seems to be willing to put his friend at mortal risk for the sake of material and matrimonial gain and to give away his wife's ring against his oath. But these questions ignore the text. In Act 1, Scene 3, lines 154 to 155, Bassanio has said, You shall not seal to such a bond for me. I'd rather dwell in my necessity. And Shakespeare punctuates the assertion with the rhymed couplet. Bassanio agrees to Antonio's bond with Shylock only because of Antonio's persuasion. Bassanio is the embodiment of virtue in the young lover a Jason seeking the golden fleece that is Portia. As we are told at Act 1, Scene 1, Line 172, and Act 3, Scene 2, Line 241. In Venice, Bassanio is a generous entertainer and master, not a miserly value of quantities like Shylock. At the same time, he is conscious of his debts and wishes to pay them off. His debts themselves are not the issue for no one makes an issue of them. His desire to repay Antonio's love is the issue, as he says at Act 1, Scene 1, Lines 127 to 134. His request of Antonio to furnish him with the means to win in one journey a fair and virtuous wife and the wealth to pay his debts is indeed, as he says at Line 175, thrift, meaning a way of thriving and his mind correctly foretells good fortune at lines 175 to 176, as Antonio's sadness correctly foreshadows loss. At line 129, Bassanio has called himself something too prodigal, but that is modesty. We know so, because ten lines later, Antonio says that Bassanio always stands within the eye of honor. Bassanio's wise words in the casket scene at Act 3, Scene 2, Lines 73 to 107, are an expression of the true lover's insight, as the words of Morocco express the blindness of pride, and those of Aragon the blindness of folly. Portia is right to love Bassanio, and her father's casket test is vindicated in Bassanio's victory. Bassanio is also an exemplary friend to Antonio whose predicament is not Bassanio's fault, but the result of bad fortune coupled with Shylock's implacable will. In the trial scene, Act 4, Scene 1, Bassanio says he would give up all to save Antonio. That's lines 282 to 287. This is the true friend's answer to his friend's own willingness to be sacrificed. When Bassanio gives the supposed Balthazar, really Portia, Portia's ring, in Act 4, Scene 1, line 453, he is not betraying Portia in any moral or spiritual way. Rather, he seasons his actions to the time and situation. His giving up the outward symbol of their love is called for by the circumstances, which, after all, Portia has set up precisely to see what Bassanio really values and to have fun. Bassanio gives the ring when Antonio asks him to do so and Portia would have him do so, for she knows he is faithful in wanting to keep the ring and also in wanting to give it up for his friend's sake. If it looks to an outsider as if he has betrayed his love, one who has insight and the capacity to value things rightly will know better. And of course, as we know and he does not yet, giving the ring to, quote, Balthazar is really giving it to Portia and so is the best way to keep it. Now let's look at Shylock's daughter, Jessica. 
how can Jessica be justified in betraying and robbing her own father and abandoning her heritage? She answers this question herself at Act 2, Scene 3, Lines 16 to 21. Alack, what heinous sin is it in me to be ashamed to be my father's child? But though I am a daughter to his blood, I am not to his manners. O oh, Lorenzo, if thou keep promise, I shall end this strife, become a Christian and thy loving wife. Her fear of heinous sin is the appropriate hesitation any daughter should feel in being ashamed to be her father's child. It is parallel to Launcelot's fear of obeying the fiend by changing masters. But Shylock being what he is, it is no sin to leave him and become a Christian. Notice that there is no talk of Jessica's betraying her faith or her people, which there would be if Shakespeare cared to make apostasy an issue. The issue is leaving a house that is hell for a life of love and a path to heaven, which is what becoming a Christian means to the Elizabethan audience. The singing and dancing and masks that Shylock wants to shut out are symbols of joy, which Jessica rightly prefers to the miserliness and isolation she knows at home. Jessica's heinous sin, like Portia's saying she is an unlessened girl, at Act 3, Scene 2, Line 159, or has a bad voice, at Act 5, Scene 1, Line 113, like Bassanio's saying, I was a braggart, at Act 3, Scene 2, Line 258, like Antonio's saying he has made a want wit by sadness, Act 1, Scene 1, Line 6, like Lancelot's thinking he is following the fiend, rather than his conscience, in leaving Shylock's service for Bassanio's, in Act 2, Scene 2, all these are dramatic versions of rhetorical figures, antiphrasis or autocategoria, intended to imply their self-evident opposites. Portia is far from unlessened, and no one but she says she has a bad voice or indeed any defects at all. Bassanio has been honest and no braggart. Antonio is no want wit. The voice that tells Launcelot to leave Shylock is that of true conscience. Jessica as Lorenzo says of her, is not guilty of any sin. She is, as he calls her in Act 2, Scene 6, Line 56, wise, fair, and true. And their banter about false lovers in Act 5, Scene 1, Lines 1 through 22, just like the banter about the rings, is love play. Lorenzo and Jessica, like Portia and Bassanio, or Nerissa and Graziano, jestingly accuse one another of infidelity and slander, precisely because none of them is guilty of any such thing. Their jesting bespeaks and punctuates the happiness in their fidelity that unfaithful lovers could never enjoy. Jessica's actions are justified by events as well, for her fidelity to Lorenzo has brought her father more mercy than would have come to him if she had not stolen from his house. In regard to Shylock, Lorenzo has said, at Act 2, Scene 4, Lines 33 to 34, If e'er the Jew her father come to heaven, it will be for his gentle daughter's sake. This prediction comes true in part, for Antonio has Lorenzo and Jessica in mind at the trial's end when he stipulates that Shylock leave half his wealth to them and become a Christian. Jessica's taking on a disguise in order to escape Shylock's domain is not sin, but symbol. Portia's picture is encased in the lead casket as love is encased in the will to give and hazard all. Portia is dressed in the robes of a doctor of laws as mercy in the robes of justice. Again, compare to the duke in Measure for Measure. Antonio's right is hidden in Shylock's bond as blood in the flesh and the spirit of the law in the letter. The soul is dressed in the body, and like all these disguises, the loving Jessica is disguised as the daughter of a Jew. But since, as she says in Act 2, Scene 3, lines 18 to 19, she is daughter to his blood but not to his manners, to disguise herself in order to escape Shylock is not to falsify herself, but to become her true self. As Bassanio is characterized as a Jason, who finds his golden fleece in the leaden casket, 
So Lorenzo is another Jason who finds his golden fleece in an equally unlikely place, the house of a Jew. Jessica, as his torchbearer, lights their way to joy. Now let's turn to Portia. Even the marvelous Portia is abused by critics of her supposed flaws. Isn't she racist in her comments on Morocco's complexion? Isn't she weak in choosing to obey her dead father's instruction, instead of just marrying Bassanio, whom she loves, as a liberated woman would? Doesn't she cheat by playing a song for Bassanio that she did not play for the other suitors? In the trial scene of Act Four, doesn't she entrap Shylock by suggesting that even if he is not merciful, he will win the case? Isn't her quibble about the blood just legalistic self-serving? Why does she force Bassanio to break his oath about the ring and then tease him about it? All these objections to Portia are a function of expecting the play to be a modern, politically correct soap opera instead of what it is. Seen from the Elizabethan perspective, such objections dissolve into irrelevance. The Elizabethan attitude toward dark-skinned people, like Christian anti-Semitism, is another of history's tragedies. But Shakespeare's purpose in Portia's characterization of Morocco is not to give vent to racial prejudice. Here, as in Othello, the relation between skin color and character is developed for specific dramatic purposes. According to Renaissance belief, black is the color of the devil, as you may see in comments in Love's Labor's Lost, at Act 4, Scene 3, Line 250, and in All's Well That Ends Well, at Act 4, Scene 5, Lines 42 to 43. Portia's two comments about Morocco's color, though Morocco is a tawny moor, not a blackamoor like Othello, use the word complexion. That word signified not merely the hue of one's skin, but the complex of elements and humors in a person, and therefore the nature of the character. I will discuss complexion and humors in a future podcast, Series 1, Chapter 7. Before Portia sees Morocco, she says, at Act 1, Scene 2, Lines 129 to 131, If he have the condition of a saint and the complexion of a devil, I had rather he should shrive me than wive me expressing both her aesthetic preference and her recognition that the outward shows may be least themselves. But she says she will marry him if he chooses right. Once he has chosen wrong, she hopes that all of his complexion choose so, that is, that all of not only his skin color but his moral makeup. And we do not blame her because we have seen Morocco's shortcomings for ourselves. It turns out that the fun Portia makes of her suitors is the fun that ought to be made of them, for all but Bassanio, including the Englishman, presumably a white Anglo-Saxon, are in one way or another proud, foolish, or cowardly. The terms of the casket test include the provision that any suitor swear never to marry if he should choose wrongly. Most of the suitors leave unwilling to accept those terms and so exhibit their unworthiness. The casket test proves itself not only by winning for Portia the man whom she loves, and ought to love, and who truly loves her, but also by preserving Portia and at least two other potential wives from marrying fools. The reference is in Act 2, Scene 9, Lines 11-13. through 13. Even from the grave, Portia's wise father shows mercy to other men's daughters as well as to his own, in distinct contrast with Shylock, for whom the relation between death, daughters, and caskets is, would she were hearsed at my foot and the ducats in her coffin. That's at Act 3, Scene 1, lines 89 to 90. In acquiescing to the will of a dead father, Portia, like Bassanio, gives and hazards all, and in doing so wins what she desires compare with the gold casket, and what she deserves, compare with the silver casket. The song sung while Bassanio is choosing among the caskets is not a form of cheating. It cannot help anyone who has not the wit to see its point. 
and if Shakespeare meant us to see it as cheating, someone somewhere would have said so. In the courtroom scene of Act 4, Scene 1, Portia's legal judgment is unexceptionable, and her speech on mercy is sublime. It's at lines 184 to 202. She concludes that speech with a statement that has been read as a trap for Shylock. I have spoke thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which, if thou follow, this strict court of Venice must needs give sentence gainst the merchant there, the merchant being Antonio. These words are meant not to tempt Shylock to ignore mercy, but to put Shylock's choice dramatically before him and us. Justice or mercy, the letter of the law or its spirit. Portia offers him the chance to be merciful several more times before she nails him with the flesh-blood distinction, derived from an old folk tale. The point of that distinction is not that the Christians are as petty as Shylock. It is that implacable justice and nothing but justice will, in the end, hurt the accuser even more than the accused. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is shown to be essential to everyone's life. Portia's ring test is delightful fun, but it is also a comic version of the serious testing of Shylock in the court scene and of Bassanio in Belmont. Will the person being tested trust to the outward show, the glittering casket, the letter of the bond, the possession of the ring? Or will he rather trust to the greater reality of which these are external disguises? Shylock fails his test. Bassanio passes both the casket test and the ring test, and Portia knows it. Shylock, remembered in the harmony of Act V, as a man in whom there is no music, and who is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils, is consistently guilty of blindness to true value. Just as on medieval cathedrals the personified synagogue was pictured blindfolded in the presence of the personified church. His speech is repetitive and mechanical. See Act 1, Scene 3, Lines 1 to 15. Act 2, Scene 5, Lines 1 to 18. Act 3, Scene 3, Lines 1 to 17. Act 4, Scene 1, Lines 42 to 62, and other places. To Shylock, the murderous hatred of a fellow human being is indistinguishable from another man's hatred of a rat a gaping pig, a cat, a bagpipe, the images he uses in Act 4, Scene 1, lines 52 to 62. He trusts to the letter of the law, which means to his own will. Barring a redemption unimaginable to him, he is appointed to loneliness and destruction. Portia, by contrast, treats the ring as no more valuable than it should be treated, and loves Bassanio the more, for his having given it away for good reason. There is no exclusion in love. Loving a wife and loving a friend are equally valid and valuable. In well-tuned minds, one love is not jealous of another, especially when mere caskets and rings are at issue. Jessica could be happy loving both Shylock and Lorenzo, if only Shylock would let her. And Portia wants Bassanio to love Antonio truly, for it means that he can also love her truly. This is the unity of love, which in Shylock's arithmetic is unimaginable. Giving the ring in thanks to the doctor of laws for saving Antonio's life, Bassanio is being true to Portia, who is the doctor of laws, not only by virtue of her disguise, but by virtue of her actually doctoring in the courtroom of Venice. She is also symbolically a doctor of the law of love, which supersedes the law of contracts and bonds as the New Testament was believed to have superseded the old. The physical ring makes a circuit from Portia to Bassanio, from Bassanio via Antonio, who requests that it be given, and Graziano, who carries it, to the supposed Balthazar, from Balthazar to Portia, a short trip, and again from Portia to Bassanio. But the circuit that the ring makes in being given and given again is a far greater ring 
than the physical ring itself. In giving up the mere golden ring, Bassanio and then Portia complete the ring of love. Portia gives Antonio life with the court judgment and living with the letter about his safely harbored ships, as we hear at Act 5, Scene 1, line 286. Thus, the play ends with the true dispensation of the wealth that has served as the medium of exchange throughout. For Shylock, that material wealth has been all, measurable against love and life itself, until it is weighed against his own life. For the others, it is the means of enjoying both life and love precisely because it is valued only with respect, that is, willingly hazarded for that which is more valuable. In Venice, Shylock closes up his house's ears against the entry of music from the world, just as he has been enclosed in his own selfish will. In Belmont, the music of Portia's house spreads out into the world, as Portia herself goes out to Venice to redeem Antonio from Shylock and Shylock from himself. Shylock's house is a hell, Portia's is a heaven, and the play that shows us so ends in heavenly harmony. Finally, we come to Shylock. The second of the major difficulties with this play is the anti-Jewish doctrines and stereotypes that Shakespeare and his audience had inherited and that Shakespeare made use of for dramatic purposes. The impulse behind Shakespeare's characterization of the Jew was not racial or ethnic prejudice. To see this, we need only notice that the moment the spiritual orientation of Shylock's Jewish daughter Jessica is recognized, she is embraced by the Christians. Nor was the anti-Semitism of Shakespeare's time an active persecution spurred by fringe group propaganda and conspiracy theories arising from a supposedly alien presence. There were almost no Jews in England between 1290 when they were expelled and the mid-17th century when they were invited back. There certainly were conspiracy theories about the Jews, but they arose in England not as a response to the presence of actual Jews. They arose from two millennia of Christian religious myth rooted in the reaction of the early Christian theologians to Judaism's rejection of the divinity of Christ. From ancient times, Christians had justified their persecution of the Jews by claiming to be God's instruments in punishing them for denying Christ. As I noted earlier, during the Middle Ages, the synagogue was personified in cathedral sculpture as a blindfolded woman, signifying that the Jews were a people benighted by God for having rejected Christian salvation. Because of this theological tradition, Jews were imagined to be guilty of every vice that Christian doctrine had repudiated greed, lust, pride, violence, faithlessness, and revenge. Through the Middle Ages and into Shakespeare's time, Jews were portrayed on the stage as just such archetypal villains, usually with red wigs and leering, malicious faces. Shakespeare inherited this tradition and he was a Christian. But he was also the greatest poetic and dramatic genius in history. When he wrote dramas about inherited beliefs and live moral issues, he did not do it with cardboard characters. He brought his characters to life. Under his hands, the stereotype of the Jew became a realistic, eloquent, and convincing human being. That character, Shylock, has all the traditional characteristics of spiritual blindness that Christians ascribe to Jews. He is selfish, materialistic, greedy, usurious, possessive, and revengeful. But brought to life by Shakespeare's art, he also feels pain, disappointment, and sorrow, and he justifies his villainy with reasons, lots of them. Shakespeare's audience, as Shakespeare well knew, would have seen through Shylock's reasons. They would have felt the power of Shylock's feelings, but at the same time recognized his reasons as what we now call rationalization. They would have seen clearly that murder was not justice, and that a Jew's having eyes, hands, and feelings, like a Christian, could not justify revenge. 
Not even the elopement of a daughter could justify murder, no matter how believable Shakespeare made Shylock's grief. And Shylock's forced conversion at the end, which is shocking to us, or should be, would have been seen by the Renaissance audience as a gift of mercy to Shylock, a last-minute redemption from hell bestowed by a forgiving Antonio and a beneficent duke. The difficulty for us is that halfway between Shakespeare's time and ours, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the Western world changed. The Enlightenment and Romanticism happened, and the American and French revolutions happened. They profoundly changed our most basic ideas about what we ought to value. Newly defined values developed. Equality, democracy, freedom for the individual from the perceived or real oppressions of tradition, religion, and class, and from stereotypes of all kinds. These are our received ideas, as fundamental to our thinking as Christianity and its traditional concept of the Jews were fundamental to Shakespeare's. So in the early 19th century, Shylock began to be portrayed differently. He was reconceived to gain our sympathy. His protest against being vilified came to seem more justified, and his desire for revenge less evil. Soon, The Merchant of Venice was transformed from a play about love and self-sacrifice triumphing over selfish greed into a play about a poor, wronged victim rising up against unjust persecution. The altered worldview of directors and actors forced Shylock's words to mean to audiences what Shakespeare never intended. The play's Christians were also transformed. Where Shakespeare's audience saw in Antonio the virtue of self-sacrificial love, now audiences were compelled to see hypocrisy and racism. Where audiences used to find profundity in Portia's plea for Shylock to be merciful, and genius in her solution of the justice problem, now they found a cheap trick in the former and oppression in the latter. But this modern attitude didn't sit right because the words of the play didn't actually support it. In the early 20th century, some directors began to feel that modern interpretations had come too far from Shakespeare's intentions, and there was a backlash. But instead of going back to Shakespeare's humanized, stereotypical Jew, they went even further back to the medieval stage villains of Shakespeare's youth. There was the old cardboard Jew in the red wig and malicious smile, cackling and being hissed off the stage. This portrayal had the virtue of restoring the Christians to their rightful, admirable positions in the play. The trouble was that Shylock's words couldn't be contained in such a shallow rendering. They kept bringing the cardboard villain back to life. Then the Holocaust happened, in which the German Nazi regime and its abettors murdered six million Jews because they were Jews, the most monstrous offspring of the 2,000-year tradition of Christian persecution of the Jews. After that, directors could not imagine portraying Shylock except as the poor wronged victim of oppression. As a result of this complex history of Christian anti-Semitism, in our time we struggle with how to approach this great play, especially with how it can be produced on the stage. There seem to be four possibilities, all of them problematic. 1. We can try to remain as authentically Shakespearean as possible. This means making the Christians good and Shylock a convincing and realistic villain, hoping that even a modern audience can embrace the play's values of love, forgiveness, and self-sacrifice despite the discredited tradition of anti-Semitism behind the drama. But such productions also run the risk of perpetuating Shakespeare's inherited stereotype. 2. We can adapt the play to modern sensibilities, making Shylock the hero and delegitimizing the Christians, forcing the play to be not about greed and revenge and legalism, but about racism and hypocrisy. But to do so, we must ruin the play's profound treatment of justice and mercy, 
of reductive materialism and loving self-sacrifice, entirely obscuring what Shakespeare meant the play to be. 3. We can try to eat our cake and have it too by combining elements of both interpretations and letting the audience decide what to think. This choice results in a production that projects moral confusion and leaves us bewildered instead of uplifted. 4. We can refuse to produce the play at all, on the grounds that doing it right misleads audiences about the Jews, and doing it wrong misleads audiences about the play. This means shelving one of the world's great plays for fear of how people will respond to it. Perhaps there is no right way to produce this play in our time, but those who do mount theatrical or cinematic productions of the play should keep several things in mind. First, the play is a comedy, which meant in Shakespeare's time that the ending is a happy one in which nobody dies. Second, the Merchant of Venice as Shakespeare conceived it is not mainly about Shylock, any more than As You Like It is mainly about Duke Frederick, or Much Ado About Nothing mainly about Don John, or Twelfth Night mainly about Malvolio. Like the casket test, like the shipwrecks, Shylock is an obstruction in the unfolding story of the meaning of love. Third, in Shakespeare's terms, the ending is happy not only because Shylock's evil intentions are thwarted and Antonio's life saved, but because even the villain is saved from the consequences of his own villainy. If he had taken his pound of flesh, he would have been guilty of murder. If he had not become a Christian, he might have been damned. Fourth, and most important, the deepest values that Shakespeare was trying to bring to life in The Merchant of Venice are values that, in reality, good Christians and good Jews, in fact all people of goodwill, share. They are that justice must be tempered with mercy, that loving sacrifice must be rated above greedy acquisition, that as we look for divine mercy for ourselves, so we must show it to others and that we all ought to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, a principle which the New Testament imports from the Old. Still, the conflict remains. The play is a comedy of the triumph of a good we should all value over an evil we should all reject. But that triumph is dramatized through the use of a stereotype arising from one of history's most deplorable tragedies, the Christian theological justification of the persecution of the Jews. Wherever we look at the Merchant of Venice, no matter how the play is directed, that unavoidable fact hits us squarely in the eye. Now let's look at some of the key lines in the play. 1. In Act 1, Scene 3, Lines 42-52, to 52, Shylock says, I hate him, for he is a Christian. Cursed be my tribe if I forgive him. To the Elizabethan audience, these words introduce Shylock as beyond doubt a villain. That he calls down a curse on the Jews if he shows forgiveness for Antonio's lending money gratis recalls to the audience the curse they believe is already upon the Jews for not accepting the Christian doctrine of forgiveness and vicarious redemption through Christ. 2. At Act 1, Scene 3, Line 102, Antonio says, Oh, what a goodly outside falsehood hath! Think of this comment on Shylock in light of the caskets and what is hidden in them in Act 2, Scene 7, Act 2, Scene 9, and Act 3, Scene 2. 3. In his self-defense, in Act 3, Scene 1, Lines 53-73, to 73, Shylock tries to justify his intention to take a pound of Antonio's flesh by arguing Jews have eyes, hands, organs, dimensions, etc., just as Christians do. The argument is seen by modern readers as equivalent to our principles of justice and equality. That is not Shakespeare's intention, however, and the flaws in Shylock's argument demonstrate as much. The first is that in equating Jew and Christian, he appeals only to the lowest common elements in human nature, 
the physical body and the passions, about the mind and spirit of men and their capacity to reason and to love, he says nothing. The second is that he concludes his oration with a justification of revenge. To the Elizabethan audience, such a conclusion completely undermines the argument. Even in the complex case of Hamlet, the desire for personal revenge in a Shakespeare character is always a sign of error, if not of outright villainy. The appeal to similarities in order to justify murderous revenge entirely discredits the appeal. 4. At Act 3, Scene 2, Line 73, and following, Bassanio says, So may the outward shows be least themselves. The world is still, meaning always, deceived with ornament. Bassanio's internal reasoning about the caskets articulates the theme of the contrast between false appearance and true reality, and his speech applies it to various areas of life, including the law court that will be the setting of the climactic trial of Act 4, Scene 1. 5. In Act 3, Scene 4, lines 11 to 18, Portia recognizes the true nature of the friendship between Antonio and Bassanio when she observes that in companions that do converse and waste the time together, whose souls do bear an equal yoke of love, there must be needs a like proportion of lineaments, of manners, and of spirit, which makes me think that this Antonio, being the bosom lover of my lord, must needs be like my lord. 6. In the trial scene, Act 4, Scene 1, Line 184 and following, Portia gives her great speech on mercy, beginning, The quality of mercy is not strained. The speech ends as follows. Though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. Portia's plea pointedly articulates the theme of justice and mercy, both essential values, neither sufficient in itself without the right seasoning of the other. She uses the term seasoned at Act 5, Scene 1, Line 107, in the sense of tempered or moderated, as I'll mention in a moment. 7. Also in the trial scene, Act 4, Scene 1, at lines 368 to 94, the Duke says, That thou shalt see the difference of our spirit, I pardon thee thy life before thou ask it. And eventually Shylock says, I am content. The Duke's mercy is allied to Antonio's. Antonio agrees to let Shylock keep half his wealth on condition that he become a Christian and that upon his death he leave his fortune to his daughter, both of which stipulations would be seen by the Elizabethan audience as manifest examples of mercy and kindness. The Duke allows Shylock to keep his mortal life, and Antonio compels Shylock to find eternal life. Shylock's next-to-last speech, though forced, is the sign of his will's acquiescence in saving his own soul. 8. In Act 5, Scene 1, Lines 58-65, to 65, Lorenzo observes to Jessica, Look how the floor of heaven is thick inlaid with patterns of bright gold. There's not the smallest orb which thou beholdst, but in his motion like an angel sings, still choiring to the young-eyed cherubims. Such harmony is in immortal souls, but whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth grossly close it in, we cannot hear it. Enclosed in flesh, we cannot see the soul it encloses, or hear the harmonious music of the spheres, a topic I'll take up in a future podcast, Series 1, Chapter 7. But we may know the soul and the heavenly music are there, and may value both above what we see and hear in the outward show of the fallen and sin-riddled world. Lorenzo's speech makes explicit the philosophical grounds of all proper valuation.
9. At Act 5, Scene 1, lines 99 to 108, Portia says, Nothing is good, I see, without respect. How many things by season, seasoned are, to their right praise and true perfection. Portia here utters the point of the play. Valuing each thing with respect, seasoning our judgments, we become capable of right praise and are ourselves seasoned to true perfection. Finally, here are two specific notes to help in your reading of the play. 1. At Act 1, Scene 3, Line 142, Shylock says to Antonio in relation to his offer of the Mary Bond, This is kind, I offer. Kind is both kindness and natural dealings, the treatment one would offer to his own kind, that is, his own family, his own species. Shylock claims to be offering the ducats at no interest instead of engaging in his usual usury to which Antonio is opposed, because it is unnatural to make barren metal breed. This kindness will reveal itself to be radical unkindness when Shylock decides to enforce his bond. 2. The last line of the play refers to Nerissa's ring. The joke is lost if one is not aware of the sexual innuendo. Graziano is vowing to guard not only Nerissa's golden ring, but also her sexual fidelity. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Shakespeare.